This is a very special episode of Through the Window, News of the Century. So, moving on to our other heroes, when we're talking about moments of transition and everything like that, something that strikes me in regards to Frank is... I want to give him a hug. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. We have seen many different aspects of Frank over the years. And I remember from our interview with Spencer that he was pondering to himself how he was going to be able to voice this new version of Frank. How he mentioned, like, you know, the Mm. idea of saying his lines like he was balancing himself on a cane or something like that. Mm. How it was that he was going to come to terms with this new version of Frank and make the voice different enough to note the change that has come over him and yet still have it be in line with everything that he's done up to this point. And based on the words that come through Frank's mouth and some of the descriptive detail that describes who he is now, it doesn't feel to me like that's going to be all that difficult because a lot of the heavy... Really? Well, okay, so let let me expound on that. Um, Please do. A lot of heavy lifting has already been done in terms of establishing who Frank is when Annie was still around. He is basically a different version of himself. He is the best version of himself. Even when Annie isn't necessarily physically there, as long as he believes that he's going to see her again, that they are going to continue their lives, even if he feels like a piece of himself has, quote-unquote, gone to sleep. That quality, the best parts that he has gained from his relationship with Annie are still a part of his essential makeup and everything like that. I had not done a full re-listen to Steamheart since 2019, after the audio drama was originally finished. I had gone back to certain chapters to listen to my favorite parts, but my focus has been on whatever stories we're covering on Through the Window, or the new stuff that has come out this year. Since time of recording this news of the century, I went back to Butler's introductory chapter in Steamheart, where we see the first moment of transition for him, his life before the Wendigo. He found a way to come back from losing his family then, and in the process met Annie while serving with the RSA. She was not the only thing that gave him purpose in moving forwards, but as someone that has experienced something similar recently, it's different than having a cause. She inspired him to become a better person than he was. The man that warmly hugged James when he and Abigail came to Langley. That is part of why his interactions with James in this novel cut so deep as we see not only what Annie's loss has done to him, 
but also the darkness that he had to unleash in order to save his comrades in Green Hollow. Something Toby will go on to elaborate on in a moment. Hmm. Now Annie has been utterly reft from him, and we can see right from the beginning that he is... that he has come to terms with that to a degree, but we see a version of Frank that we have never seen before in terms of there is something about him that is almost John Wick-esque to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Like we, we, That imagery was kind of invoked a little bit at the very end of Steamheart when he came out of the cell and basically did battle with the green hollow people and everything like that but and now you get insight into that in one sequence here where yeah. like it describes him reliving that and you see the thinking that was going through his head because it's appropriate in steamheart that you look at this on the outside with utter horror mm -hmm. and here i think that now that we're back to him and we want to like continue to empathize it's sort of necessary to see the specific calculations and gears that were turning when he decided to shoot a boy dead. And when you see it, you see that it wasn't purely like out of vitriol or hate. It was just he saw the situation, he did the calculations, and he didn't have any restraint to say, like, I'm not going to take any chances. Don't linger. Go. Next. Mm -hmm. Next. Next. Even from that very moment, he was seeking death mm. at that point because he didn't actually want to have to go on without Annie. And mm. the Frank that we see now is the result of him having to go on without her. And we see in him a little bit, particularly thanks to that moment you were just referring to, that part of this new change in him is that like, he has always felt like the one thing that defined him other than Annie was his ability to be good with a gun. He's basically mm -hmm. a killer. And he has, sort to a certain extent, embraced that. He thinks of himself as a monster. But the simple truth is that, yes, while he may have cold-bloodedly, one might even think necessarily, taken care of all of those awful people at the beginning of the book in order to protect the innocent, so to speak. And the people associated with them that it's it's just it, in that moment, them defending or being complicit to what was going on there, it's just it's, that's too many calculations, he just had to act. Yeah, but in the meantime, the point is is that he's still a person of, he's still a character of duty. Mm. He's a, he's a creature of duty. He doesn't become someone that doesn't care at all because otherwise he wouldn't have bothered. He could have just, in theory, just have like picked up his stuff and moved on like Rebecca does and not gotten involved at all. But no, he chose to stay and confront these people and to take whatever comes next, whether it results in his potential death at the hand of the judge or whatever but he couldn't not do anything at that point. That's mm. just not a part of his makeup. So when Rebecca comes to him with a new mission, 
it doesn't even occur to him to refuse. No, the, he, it's less than a page long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And as he relates to everything that happens, it's just pretty much all about, okay, I'm going to do my best to do the job that I've been given because I'm a soldier and that's what I do. I obey orders. I am not necessarily going to do it with as much care and empathy as he may once have done, which mm-hmm. colors his reactions to James and Rebecca and Sana and a lot of other stuff along mm-hmm. the way. And when He's I say not really that, interested in maintaining himself or like relationships or anything. Yeah, relationships know. with others. No, he just will say everything directly without really being all that invested in how it affects other people. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to do it to the best of what I think should be done. Mm. And that means that he gets into arguments with people from time to time. But this is basically just one more thing that he's doing on the road to the grave, so to speak. And And I almost think that he like was quick to take up Rebecca's mission because he sort of almost he would have gone to these folk in i forget the name of the town that he was there for a year the town was called willowdell which happens to be where annie oakley was originally born given that the story specifically says that this was annie's old cabin this may well be her familial home although i admit this is just based on the wikipedia entry i still have to recover annie's story in steamheart to see where her life might differ from the original history. But uh, when he has that altercation with the six like criminals there, and it would be unlikely that they could actually take him out, considering even in his state, like his assessment, he probably would be able to like be reasonably confident that they would not be the death of him. But like if not, then whatever. And the judge, in all a likelihood, could and would hang him for this and when fulfilling his duty at the cost of his own life doesn't come to pass there it's like well i need to find another place to do that oh you've got something for me sweet let's do this god thinking about it it's to a certain extent the place that butler is at right now is a little bit like the place that wild bill hickok was at in those first couple of episodes of deadwood Mm. where he's just looking for a place to lose himself or alternately, as he says, as a part of the show itself. I don't want to fight it no more. You understand me, Charlie? And I don't want you pissing in my ear about it. Can you let me go to hell the way I want to? Mm. And everything like that. So, yes, uh. the the altercation in Willowdell didn't kill him so okay new mission maybe this will kill me yeah he's Um, just throwing himself into these situations until one of them sticks and he's even envisioning like it's almost the opposite of what colo nash does in panther soul where he envisions his moment of triumph and thinks okay how do i get to that point Mm -hmm. butler by contrast is going right our last stand will be this if i calculated this I'm not going to just lay down and die. I am going to put everything I can into it. But with my calculations, it will only last five minutes. And Mm -hmm. that will be an end. It'll be painful, but I don't care. It'll be an end. I'll have done my duty. Sweet. Let's do this. Like, it's (laughs) 
the... I love the way you're framing all of this, just sort no. of very matter of fact, just like Butler himself would. Mm. But I love that what you say is that he, there is a part of him that still cares. And I think the part, for me, that was most felt when he, when they finally get to Greta, because considering like the moment of tension you had when they were underground and he was talking about how I've been in a situation like this before. And there's a moment where you think, wait, is Butler going to sabotage this whole mission right now? And you get really antsy and then it, it doesn't come to anything, but you wonder. And then when you get to Greta, this person who is responsible for everything here he still persists with the mission. It's still to rescue her. And not only that, but he says, I don't want you to be without your beloved, ma'am. And he extends courtesy to her by like, sort of saying like, ma'am, he's a gentleman. It's specifically that he doesn't want her to be without like, right. Yeah. Because he's, he's empathizing with her in the way that he Mm. relates to her because of his relationship with Annie. Yes. Yeah. I, I, Toby ran over the top of this idea really fast, but I do want to take a moment to ponder the fact that, given his bitterness, he could have just decided to kill Greta and Krieger there. As Toby points out, their actions indirectly led to Annie's untimely death, as well as a lot of other deaths along the way. I never considered that that might be a danger, given that that's not what his orders were, and as mentioned before, he's still a soldier. His argument with James stems from trying to accomplish goals that are not in line with what they were ordered to do. But defying his orders is not something he's easily given to do, either before or after Annie's death. Given how shockingly different Butler is behaving, one can see why the idea might have occurred to Toby. So that is definitely part of the turning point for Butler, But the reason why I think that Spencer's going to be able to dig his teeth in into portraying this new... to the original question, which was like when you said, like, yes, this won't be a problem. I'm like, what? Well, so here's the thing. Based on the dialogue that Alex is going to be giving Spencer to work with, I think that he is going to be able to... First of all, he never gives himself enough credit. Let's put that right on the table right there. That is a fact. (laughs) Uh, so Spencer, just, you're great. If you're yes. listening to this, you're great. Spencer, Spencer, you're great. So I, I have complete confidence in his his ability to pull this off. But just based in the small things, in terms of the change in the kind of words that Butler uses to talk to people, and the coldness with which he informs James that he would have no problem with shooting the man in his head. If it felt he felt like that was going to be what needed what was needed for the mission or whatever, that and part, the fact uh, that one of these days I need to learn how to record different voice tracks, so I could have separated out Toby's response there without having talked over him. And while I won't say that it broke my heart necessarily, I couldn't read those words without having an emotional reaction either. And the fact that he is not constantly but that he is swearing without apologizing for it Mm. like that's part that's part of how we know that butler is coming back to himself at the end 
because he actually uses that signature phrase of his again, pardon my French. Even when he says it sort of like almost sardonically during his low moments, I can't help but get a little sort of flutter in my heart of just like, <laughs> oh, but the, um, and I agree that as much as I think that getting to this headspace is a Herculean task for any performer, I have no doubt that Spencer is not only up to it, but that he'll do a great job because he's done so many uh, of them. But you started by saying that our heroes are in a point of transition. And to a certain extent, Butler's kind of in a point of stasis, that Mm. life isn't life anymore. That's Mm, mm. a sentence in a narration ascribed to him. Before we end, by the way, remind me to talk about the narration, because I have a point about that, but Mm -hmm. I won't go off on a tangent that life isn't life anymore. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most sharp, like it hurts me because of how true it is in the sense of that is depression. That is a place where your head decides why am I alive when life isn't life anymore? And I've never been at a place where I've, like I could say seriously had suicidal thoughts but it's just such a terrible place and so I guess his transition that he is expecting or hoping is that he will go from this state of unlife to a finality of death that Mm -hmm. he will do his duty and that will be it but the transition ends up being a point at which he doesn't feel Annie anymore or he only feels Annie's absence to a place where he doesn't necessarily express this but I think that seeing the poster of Annie and he gets like his old smile back just a like even if it's a very bittersweet sad one him being able to smile that Annie brought that smile to him is I think the first time for a long while, that he's felt a bit of Annie again. For so long, he felt her absence, but wasn't able to remember any of the joy that her presence brought him. And I think him getting that is that injection of just whatever it is he needs to try. He transitions from this state of decline and an acceptance that this is a decline that can have no other destination than my own death and I'm okay with that to a point of just trying to steer away from that you don't know exactly like where his head is there but you know that he's at the very least a little bit of his old self because he will say pardon my French Mm -hmm. so yes the whole thing with him expecting the transition to be one thing and end up being completely else. That's Mm. an important part of his arc and what brings a little bit of hope back to his story. Mm. And we'll obviously see how that continues to play out in later books. Mm. Now we start to have to talk about James. Mm. And this is where we start having to talk about some of the more difficult aspects of the book. 
where the weights of this book come for you. Like, yeah, exactly. Let's let's begin slightly off center from that. Mm-hmm. In terms of James being in a moment of transition himself, he was also in a form of. Well, maybe stasis is the wrong word precisely, but he was in a. He wasn't in limbo. He was in purgatory. Yes, he, it he was, was a cycle. He yeah. was going through a cycle of torment. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Rebecca and Frank showing up for him is the beginning of this transition for him because mm. now he finally feels like he's potentially in a place where he can atone for his mistakes. He is the one that is yeah. going in there. He is the one that is going in there the hardest in yeah. terms of like wanting to recover Krieger and Greta because oh, this is the yeah. opportunity that he has to get mm. Abigail back. His biggest mistake. I'm so glad for this conversation because it's putting the book in a new light for me that, yes, James is the one who kind of starts his transition into a form of recovery and mending. If Stone Spring is about healing, this book feels like it's about mending. Mm. And that may be a distinction without a difference, but I nevertheless feel it is appropriate to this, that he almost starts that process of mending earlier than anyone than either of his companions and that exactly. means that he's in a state of readiness not only to actually go into the mission and like do so with a feeling that like no i have to succeed at this because he wants this to succeed because not only of his practicality of making sure that his endowment gets like into the right hands but because he wants to right the wrongs with abigail that's what he wants he can't like it's not like with Butler, where he is content to like do his duty and check out. He has to stay around so that he can fix his mistakes. Yeah, and... he, he is an he is an active participant mm. in all of this. Where Rebecca and Frank have basically been assigned to mm. protect him because he's the one with the power, so yeah. to speak. So he's coming into this entire experience wounded, but basically refreshing himself right from the beginning mm. and um, james's the heart huh. and doesn't that, that feel like a, a weird thing to yes, associate with him at this point yes isn't that because he is compensating for abigail's absence and his conclusions at the end of the book of like leaning away from being wholly analytical and just Mm -hmm. sticking to the facts and actually leading into the emotional side of things now feels like trying to embrace what Abigail brought to his life and what he so desperately yearns for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because of him going into this as the active participant and because he is opening his intuition more, He's the one who actually propels the progress with Sana and the Wendigos. Let, let's call yeah. them the people at this the point. The people. Because... That's that's yeah. I it's force of habit, and I now have to come up with a new recurring gag every time a bike comes past. But uh, <laughs> like... well, the other thing that's a part of this, like this is getting a little bit into a, in another aspect of the book. Let's concentrate on James, mm. but 
the reason why his energy is is as significant as it is is because it's partly being brought to life by one of those early conflicts that he had with Butler all the way back in Secret Rooms. Mm. And suddenly realizing that, oh, I was I was potentially right about this all along, and maybe so was Butler to an extent, mm. but I have options now, James thinks mm. to himself, that I didn't have before, and if we can dovetail these two goals together, then mm. I can end up doing even more good than I originally suspected. Yeah, and he's the, he's the driving force behind not just getting Krieger and Greta back to fix his own mistakes, but ostensibly to potentially fix the mistake of the RSA in general in terms mm. of destroying this new form of life that is now actually coming into its own. And mm. there's a lot of conversation back and forth in terms of like, People saying, well, what were we expected to do? You attacked us no matter what. And there's complicated conversations in there that mm. we're really not going to be able to get into until we do the actual deep dive into the book itself. Mm. But the point is, is that the conversations are happening now and that yeah. they do have options that they didn't have before. And Precisely. they have someone, James, in this particular case, that wants to actively pursue them even as Rebecca is sort of just like going, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you your, your head on this. And mm. Frank is saying, what are you doing, you idiot? But, <laughs> but the, the point is that they're all still working together as a team, at the very least because Frank sees the value in teaming up with the people in order to achieve their original mission that gives them a greater chance mm. of success and yeah. even though he might be seeking an end himself he's still as you said not the kind of person to just lay down and die he is going, still going to try the best he can to achieve these goals he's mm. just not going to be nice to nadia and sana along the way because what's the fucking point uh, and um, once he owe them yeah like... exactly in his mind, he doesn't owe them anything, and it's all wolf and sheep mentality. That's the thing that he's ostensibly mm. embraced ever since Annie left him, and he is now just this cold, methodical, mm. monstrous killer in his own mind. Yeah. But, and... but as far as James is concerned, as you say, as much as the group loses a little bit at the end, thanks to the sudden end-of-story flipping of the script, so to speak, mm -hmm. and having lost Greta to the machinations of Rasputin and Yagana, it still doesn't change the fact that, as we have mentioned earlier, there are enormous successes that happen, and even if we should never see the people anymore, it seems like, to a certain extent, the Wendigo are still going to be a threat like they've killed off a number okay. of them, and we'll we'll get okay. into that conversation. Yeah, in a second. like we'll we'll have a conversation about logistics of Wendigo population later because there's a lot of like the sort of logistics of that which I'm mm -hmm. fascinated by. Not like sort of critical of or anything like that. I'm just sort of want to explore and unpack that. But I mean, I was a little bit more critical of it at the time, but let's let's finish up with James first. Yeah. Um. The point is, is that they, they managed to do this one good thing, and they managed to rescue a new form of people 
that absolutely deserve a chance to live, even mm. if there, there's no potential coexistence between humans and the people just due to the fact of their own biology and everything like that. Mm. So that all feels ver a ver like a very good place to end the story on in terms of, at the very least, they can get Abigail back, and they saved Sana, and they saved what remains of her, of her people, of us, as mm. they put it, even at the cost of, of other things along the way. The... And I realize that I've been running over the top of, of you a little bit here, too, but... Greg, it's high fucking time. Okay, I've been, fair enough. I, I've been talking nonstop. You need a chance, so I'm going to shut up right now. Okay, so unlike the previous two books, which I tended to go through a lot faster in general, when I started reading Nightfall of the Wendigo... I hit almost a complete hard stop right at the beginning as we learn about what happened with James um, during that period where he was in the castle all by himself and still trying to get Annie back. Excuse me. Whoa, okay, that was an unusual... Still trying to get we, Abigail back. Abigail and Annie is perpetually something that will like overlap on occasion. It's okay. but Yeah, fair enough. And this is where Yagana appears to systematically force sexual abuse on James. Mm. And I literally had to just sort of put the book down. And be like, I can't possibly handle this right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally needed to take like a nap and then continue on from there. Yeah. Like you already know me well enough by now that that kind of topic is always going to be. It's always going to push the buttons pretty heavily for me. We mm. talked about it enough in Tiger's Eye. Mm. And we glossed over the very top of it so very lightly in Panther Soul, talking about Mog and mm. Kalanash. Mm -hmm. And it's because I didn't want to get dragged down by that, because the overall positive stuff in the book, even when we were talking about just how crappy, just how dark its villains were, I wanted mm. to be kept buoyed up by that feeling. But the mm -hmm. problem here with James's story is that it's, it's persistent. Not, it's persistent. It's not a single event. It keeps happening, and so therefore we have to stay in that place with mm -hmm. James and suffer through it the same in mm -hmm. a way. And that just took a toll. Exactly. But see, here's the thing. Aside from the experience of reading it taking a toll um, and the fact that it, it dovetails a little bit with my overall misgivings about if you're going to put this kind of thing in a book, what are you actually trying to say with it? Therefore, a part of my feeling about its inclusion in this story didn't necessarily feel like it was merited on the same level that Hrao's sexual assault was thematic in Tiger's Eye, or what happened to Colin Ash 
is a part of the experience of like the crimes that a charismatic cult leader can force upon their followers and everything like that. I have rewritten this section multiple times at this point because my words in the moment felt either unequal to the task or not coherent enough. So bear with me. Here, it felt like the rape only served two purposes, and neither of them felt very good. It establishes something about the character of Yagana, which we'll get into deeper in a moment. In the case of James, when we first see what happened to him during the epilogue of Uncivil Outlaw, we see a broken man. Someone consumed by guilt and failure, compounded by the fact that in spite of months of trying, he not only repeatedly failed to get Abigail back, but potentially lost other good people in trying. And given the context of that book, I believe the events of Uncivil Outlaw, and the way his brain works, explained his current state succinctly, without further need for expository detail. Now we see that on top of everything else, he is a victim of horrible, repeated trauma. Something that went on for months with no respite, till Rebecca and Frank arrived. And that feels excessive. I cannot speak to the author's intent here, as it's going to be many months before we do a Q&A on Nightfall. But in a vacuum, it feels like maybe there was concern that we either wouldn't believe the previous established events would be enough to get James to where he needed to be, or alternately, that he somehow needed to suffer even more for what he had done. And those answers are hard to sit with. Now, the natural question to spin off from there is, Greg, you have access to Alex. Why didn't you ask his intent before recording on the novel? Well, first of all, the intent for News of the Century is all about our immediate reactions. Our Q&As are the intermediary step between the release of the audio drama, after the bulk of the audience of News Century will have heard the story, and our eventual deep-dive retrospective. That's where those kind of authorial questions need to be, after we have also heard the full context of the story, which includes the audio drama. But the simple truth is this. I couldn't. In the days and weeks after reading the novel, I was too raw. Too shaken. My pattern after reading or listening to every other New Century novel has always been to go to Alex and tell him how I felt about it. And it was almost always an effusive gush about how I loved the book. Any criticisms I might have are what this podcast is for, and not for a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And due to the way my brain works, and how I internalized this specific part of the story, I could not trust myself to talk honestly about it and not say things I would regret. I already regret some of the things that I did say. And I am thankful that I managed to keep it contained and gave myself time. Time to reflect and to heal, and time to let Toby catch up to where I was so that I could better process my thoughts. I'm also thankful that Alex understood that my reaction was not a reflection on him, but merely me being triggered, even worse than I was with Calendula in Stone String Maidens. A few days ago, 
I received a beautiful gift from him, a first edition printing of Panthersoul, complete with some concept sketches and brainstorming paper scraps from the last two books. His message to me on the title page was moving at the time, and made me choked up much later when I came back to it. By the end of this episode, I will have better come to terms with my feelings about this moment, and by the end of episode three, I will be able to say in all honesty that whatever misgivings I had immediately after reading, I am actually very happy with Nightfall of the Wendigo. But this is the most difficult part, so let's get through it. To be perfectly honest, if Yagana was trying to manipulate James in such a way or to set the pieces up to ensure that she got the outcome that she wanted at the end of the book, there could have been other ways of doing that aside from repeatedly raping him. And that just left a very strong flavor in my mouth that made me a little bit angry after the fact that I had to sit in that space. Mm. But it's not just about the experience of what James went through. Part of my frustration with that was also in what it said about Yagana. And here's the thing. As far as her as a character goes, and the way that we talked about why she was scary in Uncivil Outlaw, a lot of talking points that came up when we were trying to reflect on how we felt about her and what her game actually was. The thing about her is that after that conversation with Alex and Sharon, I was sort of open to the idea that even if she is a selfish person, much like, say, Xanatos in Gargoyles, or mm -hmm. other characters like them in other pieces of media, that maybe she was doing some sort of fourth, fifth dimensional chess, much like Merlane is, and that mm. even if she is doing things for her own benefit, as opposed to doing things from a purely altruistic notion like Merlane would seem to be doing, that maybe her machinations would all still lead to a potential positive outcome, especially given that final communication between her and James at the end of this book, sort of mm. implying that, you know, you're going to need to be ready for this, mm. but that she isn't necessarily, even though she assisted Rasputin here, she isn't necessarily invested in fighting them. She made her deal, giving Rasputin power, and she could potentially help them in the future if they give her what she wants. Put it this way, she's not exactly practicing like confidentiality with the people mm. she does deals with. No, exactly. But here's the problem with all of that. I was more than willing to go with that idea and say that she might be a deep gray instead of a pure black in terms of her motivations. Mm. But it's going to be very difficult for me 
to care about her or forgive her or to not want to, her to have some sort of comeuppance now mm. based on what she did to James. I I completely, like, I think I do share some of that, is that, like, after this, it's a case of, like, this requires some sort of, like, this being addressed. And I think that I agree with you that, like, Yagana does feel like while she may represent the sort of opposing force or opposing sort of energy to Malayne, that despite that, she is not like purely fueled like sort of selfish and destructive intentions, that there is sort of more complications to her. I I think that that's absolutely there and absolutely intended with the character. But I also see the thing with this is that I I very much wanted with this for this to be a space for you to like share all of that to process all of that. So the last thing I want to do is offer a counterpoint. And so when I say my next thing, I don't even want to frame it as that. At this point, you'll already have heard some of the few artifacts in the playback that preceded the Skype call breaking up more and more, which is the only reason that I'm putting in this editorial insert before splicing in the continuation of this conversation three days later. So without further ado, Toby's well-considered response to my words at the time. This part of the book, Yagana's violations feel as if they're representative of James's continued fixation on the decisions, deals, and mistakes that have led him up to this point in time in his life, and his self-damnation that no matter how much he rails against it, persists. As Crow says, one of the officers who has uh, been there alongside James during this time, it doesn't matter if the white scarves there don't see Yagana, which calls her presence or existence into question, she's nevertheless always there for James. So these violations are absolutely real to him. So the book never kind of tries to play the card that because the sort of metaphysicality of Yagana is like all up in the air that like this isn't technically, no, it's, it acknowledges that this is rape. And so these violations are absolutely real. It's horrifying. It's as if much like how he initially agreed to the terms of the deal that he and Yagana struck in uncivil outlaw, but now he deeply regrets it. His, initial giving in to her out of loneliness is sort of like letting her in somewhat but then that soon turned towards active but nevertheless fruitless resistance it's nightmarish harrowing but for lack of a better term for it right now to me it at least feels cohesive with what James is going through, his connection to Yagana before this, and his feelings following the end of Uncivil Outlaw. At the very least, while Yagana's violations are persistent, and they are recalled upon, and 
James still feels that hurt throughout the book, it at least doesn't extend beyond this part. And after this part, Crow's kindness and his gesture of fixing the record player, that kindness is like a life raft. It's one of the hardest parts of the book to get through. And I certainly don't think that you are wrong to have a reaction of just, I need to put this down for now, because that's kind of what this should, this feeling should have, is that it's not easy. But there's a difference between that and the issue of addressing whether it should be there at all. So Mm. it's not one that I have a definitive answer on. And it's a question, no matter what story we would be talking about from what author, that I would have a definitive answer to unless I felt actively, no, this really doesn't need to be here. So for the time being, all I can say is that it feels like it fits to the mood that James is in. And I'm just thankful that he is actively hopeful in this book in spite of the place that he starts at. So, first of all, thank you for your words. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, after letting you speak on the matter, I mm-hmm. already sort of wanted to follow up on the initial vehemence of my response with, uh, like you, a more thoughtful consideration and contrasting, because obviously the thing that I wanted to be honest about was the intensity of my reaction to it, because Mm -hmm. I feel like I always do have to be, and you should also always be, and anyone should always be emotionally honest with how they feel about something that is important to them. You know, there's always a place for diplomacy and consideration and everything like that but that you have to still speak about the things that matter to you in order to have honest communication back and forth between people whose reactions matter to you for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I'm not... It doesn't feel useful to equivocate on whether this did or didn't take place physically or not. Because... Whether Yagana was physically there or not. Um, it's a violation. Yes, exactly. And also, on top of that, one could ask, did it actually even happen because of the state that James's mind was in? But the thing is that I, I, I feel that if there was some question about James's state of mind, wherein he was, it seems clear that he is actually hallucinating things from time to time that have nothing to do with Yagata to a mm. certain extent. But it never really came into question that Yagata was doing something to him because mm. that kind of violation doesn't necessarily seem in keeping with anything that happened before like we understand during his encounter with Yagata in her hut 
that there was a weird moment between them where she revealed herself to him fully and he discovered that she was beautiful instead of this ancient haggard crone or anything like that. But it never occurred to me that there was anything going on there that was specifically any form of attraction, no matter how uh, disconcerting or anything Mm. like that. Therefore, I have to accept what happened as being something that either Yagana actually did to him or mentally did to him. Mm. Uh, Especially since, you know, as we see Frank and Rebecca collect him, one of the things that's going on in the background is very specifically the idea that Yagana is in fact watching this entire proceeding. And we also get that, like, her not quite presence being in the background later on as well, particularly as Mm -hmm. there is a suggestion of her communicating with the individual that we now know as Rasputin Mm -hmm. and everything like that. And Um, that Wraith can sense her and is, like, Mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. growling at her exactly. in the corner, not in the direction of the wind doors, but where she would be. Exactly. Mm. But here's the thing that I want to say about my feeling about her character turn in this regard. Uh-huh. When I spoke on my disappointment as a result of reconsidering her character thanks to the Q&A between us and the Shaws all the way back. And Civil Outlaw, yeah, exactly. Mm. The thing that I have to take into account is that whatever Yagana is up to, there has always been an element of sinisterness behind everything that she is doing. Like, I mm. am not a huge scholar of the stories of Baba Yaga. I know a little bit about her in terms of her reputation. And of course, this is also not meant to be her precisely, but in a separate expression of something that Alex is trying to include as being a part of his story. But if we actually just take into account what she has potentially not simply allowed to happen, but helped to happen in terms of her assisting Seth and then her actions since then, like even putting aside what happened with James, the fact that through her actions, Greta was killed and the power was passed on to Rasputin and the fact that it is entirely possible that a lot of people that, did not have to die, will have died as a Mm. result of her actions. It's here that we have to take into consideration. If you'll remember back in our discussion of Panthersoul, where we were sort of putting characters on a list of descending darkness, Mm. of the depths of their selfishness and level of depravity in terms of the things that they would do to boost their own ends. Mm. When we had that discussion, I had put Mog as being the bottom of that list, and we sort of discussed Yagana, but at this point, 
we hadn't read Nightfall of the Wendigo, and we still didn't necessarily know as much about her as we kind of do now. Mm. And what I find myself wondering is that given the far-reaching scope of her actions, she is playing on a multiversal level where Mm. Mog was only ever caring about her own power and sustenance in one world. If that means that Yagana is now down at the far end in terms of the effects that her choices and her selfishness will have on many beyond her, even if she can in theory claim that all she is doing is allowing people to make their own choices and therefore Mm. helping them to benefit by exchanging power for whatever it else that she is that she wants Mm. we have to consider that this was always an aspect of her that was going to be revealed and that it's foolish of me to be angry about a possibility that was really ever only in my own head and so therefore it's not up to anyone let alone alex to fulfill that idea or anything like that yeah. i think last time i made reference to xanatos in gargoyles as being one of those people who one one of those character types who is a mastermind who is constantly maneuvering things so that whatever happens he still benefits in some way or at the very least never is he can taken come back to- from it yeah, he has never he he never loses so much against his opponents that he is in a worse state than when he began. Yeah. The the irony is is that um even though I'm familiar with that character, that trope, I have never watched all that much of Gargoyles and I feel like I kind of need to in order to be able to talk accurately about that kind of character and that kind of trope. This is the magnificent bastard. Uh, yes, yes, like, the one covered by OSP. Episode. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So Yagana is not a magnificent bastard. She is something completely else, and that should be okay. Yeah. You know, what I realize here is that I let the deducted let... expectations. It's not just about expectations. The point is, is that the story took us to a place that was very difficult for me to stomach. And so Mm. therefore there was a natural outpouring of reaction that made me want to blame someone. Mm. And that doesn't feel fair because this is a purely fictional setting as opposed to something that actually happened to someone as opposed to very real crimes committed by very real people in Mm. the real world that Mm. I can't necessarily do anything about. And maybe it's just more disconcerting because new century is the place that I draw a lot of positivity from. Mm. And so therefore having to deal with that level of darkness in the thing that I use as a form of escapism was jarring to me. And that, mm. that affected my overall response, I guess. Mm. And I'm coming back from that. 
I think. I, 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 am, I am not going to let that initial response take away from my enjoyment of this series because mm. if there is anything that Alex has earned from me by now is that I trust his intent. Mm. I trust in what he is trying to accomplish with his stories and I'm not going to let one small thing however small it actually is but I'm not going to let it divert me from the passion I continue to have for enjoying his works and bringing our thorough discussion of these topics to his and other people's ears. Mm. And I think that this has always been an avenue for us to unpack and just process and reflect on our own emotional responses to these stories. It started that way with let them go and it sort of continued and flourished with tiger's eye and news of the century we touched on that even if they're sort of very much encapsulations of a whole series of mm. hours it has always been about us processing our own internal reactions to these things so i don't think that your honest reaction is something that is off from our mission statement mm. if that makes sense and i think that it just goes to show that there is a complexity and an amount of dialogue occurring and i think control on our parts as people responding to this that it doesn't devolve into a last jedi syndrome of <laughs> i thought x and they gave me y fuck this thing forever it's a like it's a dialogue and it's one that's existing not just with between us and the work itself but with us and ourselves and also us individually with one another if that makes sense it's not just us processing and reflecting on our own things just me on my feelings and you and your feelings it's you and me bouncing back and that's kind of how it works and that's i think very in keeping with the themes of new century but also very much this book where the heroes are at the start all hurting in ways where they aren't really open to having that kind of dialogue with one another so they can't really mm. mend from that and as it goes on you see that get a bit easier or they get back and they sort of smooth out the edges on or get rid of some of the rust on that i think is the best analogy and you see that in the scene where james after hearing from butler that butler will shoot him if he compromises the mission he has this certain amount of clarity from just hearing the worst that he's able to say like okay well now that you've said the absolute worst thing to me that kind of breaks my heart a little i've heard it i can accept that let me give you a practical response of like what you can do if you do end up receiving this endowment and after that he has a sort of clarity that allows him to have a conversation with rebecca and it's just little steps like that until it culminates in all of them on board steam heart at the end and it feels like 
they've recentered. So Nightfall of the Wendigo is a sort of feeling of dispersed characters at places where they themselves are dispersed in their feelings and their focus, and they recenter by the end. They regroup. If our own show can do that, even if it's just for us ourselves, I think that's also a mission accomplishment. There are some that have called me wise or kind or insightful in terms of what I am able to do for them when they are in a difficult place. When someone like me is the one that is having problems, Toby is one of the people I know I can turn to. His own kindness and insightfulness and wisdom is a boon to me. And the reason why this partnership works. So now that he's gotten me past the worst of it, let's move on and try to find a brighter note to end on. You bring up that conversation between James and Frank, which was a fairly interesting altercation. It's like the darker aspect of what Arlington was potentially expecting of Frank back during Steamheart when they thought, you know, and now all of a sudden Frank is being just far more bluntly honest with James about what's going on. Mm. And I have to feel like James's reaction would not have been the same as Abigail's was finding out about Annie, just because Mm. as previous books have established, James has always been willing to sacrifice for what he considers the greater good, even his own life. At some point, we should maybe discuss that mindset further, and whether it's a result of more than logic, but also some form of survivor's guilt. But that needs more space to unpack, so moving on. It still feels like that particular interaction has a different weight to it now because of the trauma involved in James's mindset but Mm. also the trauma involved in Frank's mindset. Therefore, the way that conversation ends with Butler saying something almost out of character in the way he says, you fucking creep me out. Mm. That... (laughs) That's one of those moments that is both, like, another, like, rubbing salt in the wound and Mm. also a little bit, like, sort of humorous i'll be curious uh Mm. how spencer delivers that line because butler's saying i will shoot you in the head like that is there's the text and just like the sentence itself there's no way you can't make that heavy as shit Mm -hmm. that line there could actually be kind of just a really funny delivery or it could be (laughs) like a mix because on the one hand it's sort of like I just told you I'm going to kill you. Why are you reacting like this, James? You're so you're so fucking weird, James. Like mm-hmm. that kind of energy of humor, but it's also very sad, as you say, like out of character almost. Where the first interactions that Butler has with James mm-hmm. is kind of of a way of trying to understand people. He's patient with people who have neurodivergence. You see that at the beginning of Arlington when he first meets Harry. In fact, he is the first character to meet Harry as far as the narrative of New Century goes. Obviously, Harry has 
pre-existing relationships with lots of people but for us the readers Mm -hmm. our first interaction with harry is through butler and butler shows patience and that's a kind of defining virtue of his and for him to kind of have lost that patience feels like he's lost a part of himself well that's we talked a little bit about this earlier but that is honestly like a little bit of the what's going on here where where everything that has dovetailed back to the importance of Annie in his life and the fact that with Annie permanently gone the way she is, the part of him that dovetails with the best in Annie has literally been been killed from him, you know, mm. in a very in a very John Wick way. Mm. And all that's left is pain and duty and bitterness and a fair amount of anger. The experience that we have where he's you know, being genial and friendly and trying to uh, encourage James at the, at the beginning of Secret Rooms that, you know, this is a big step. You need to consider it. And he's like, I have considered it. And mm. all of the internal monologue that we see with Frank's greater understanding of what James is like. And then later on, as you say, which we'll have a complete discussion about not too much further in the future in regards to the way he experiences Harry's neurodivergence. That's all part of a version of Frank that is, in theory, dead now. Mm. And we'll have to see how things further play out now that he has sort of come back from the abyss, so to speak, with the Mm. final events of Nightfall of the Wendigo. But... Yeah, it's all of those character moments are especially compelling. That's probably as close as we're going to get with a happy ending to this episode within the original conversation. So let me instead construct a closing statement that brings us back to center with a positive message. Earlier, I alluded to a message that Alex left me on the title page of a first edition copy of Panther Soul. And in order for that message to make sense, let me remind people of a phrase from Patton Oswalt that Alex has talked about before. Um, so just, I'm just going to end this by quoting Michelle Eileen McNamara. It's chaos. Be kind. I've made reference to this phrase in past episodes of Through the Window. So Alex knew I would understand when he wrote to me, I can never thank you enough for believing in me. Amid chaos, you choose to be kind. And while I'd never put it into those words before, the truth is that he's right. Whatever issues you may have with the Myers-Briggs personality test, I come by the epithets assigned to me honestly. In different places, the INFP has been called the dreamer, the healer, the idealist, and the mediator. The world is already too full of pain and suffering that I can't do anything about with my limited power. The only things I can do are work on myself and try to leave behind an influence of good on those that I come into contact with, encouraging them to be their best selves, to help them deal with their own pain and insecurity and anxiety, if they will let me help.
Through the window is one of the ways I try to do that. To use whatever internal decency and skill and creativity I have to boost up a set of stories and a world that I love to its creators and to its fans and hopefully spread its message to others. So when Nightfall brought me to a space where I wasn't able to do that, I needed to regroup. I couldn't let this be a roadblock to me, especially not now. The work Toby and I have done together has already meant so much to us, to Alex, to the various voices of New Century. It got us through 2020, and it brought me into contact with Maureen, who, all by herself, has opened up doors I thought closed to me, as I appear to have also done for her. Amid chaos, I don't simply choose to be kind. I have to be. Kindness is the antivenom to despair. It can dispel anger. It can inspire hope. But kindness is something I need to, because I am just as vulnerable to despair and anger as others. I'm not always as good at giving it to myself. Fortunately, I am lucky to have people in my life that helped me get through this moment so that I could return to what I love to do, what I need to do. And with that said, let me tell you about our closing song. Longtime listeners know what happens here at the end. Ever since I started picking out songs for individual outros, I would always explain my thoughts behind picking it, its personal history with me, or both. I've also been upfront with how difficult it can be to pick the right song. Sometimes I can spend the better part of an hour trying to get it right. Sometimes I find a great song, but I end up deciding I should save it for a later episode in a later story. That means that occasionally I try to start this process earlier, before I get to the end of the edit. And in the car a couple days back, this song came on after I had re-downloaded a Greatest Hits album to my phone. And I knew. This was it. From the beginning, with the talk of the coming of the winter, I knew that this was not only a New Century song, but a Nightfall song in specific. Especially when the chorus brings back hope to the world after the verses reflect the darkness of the existing world. This is the journey of both our characters and the world they live in, and it's a song that we need in the real world right now, too. Come and stand beside us. We can find a better way. Until next time, this is John Denver with Rhymes and Reasons. And the coming of the winter Fear that is within you now It seems to never end And the dreams that have escaped you And a hope that you've forgotten You tell me that you need me now You want to be my friend And you wonder where we're going Where's the rhyme? And it's you cannot accept 
Come and stand beside us, we can find. 